So, what shall we talk about today? <laughs> okay. Do you have something? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, it's, it's actually about a personal question, but I think it can be beneficial for everyone. As always, as always, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just currently dealt this afternoon with emptiness, and I have this from time to time, so just to explain very shortly. In the last years, I um, stopped having like superficial choice, so I stopped like going to parties, consumption of media, whatever, mm. consumption of food for fun, I stopped buying things, having possessions, so all the outer things I removed. Simplifying life, that was short, short two words. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Um, which I didn't really do on purpose, it just happened. Um, and then from time to time I have just this feeling of, of emptiness, like there is nothing, it's not really loneliness, it's more emptiness, and I feel like, okay, these outer things, they don't satisfy me, and then I'm like, okay, so now I'm empty, and, and how to fill this emptiness? Sometimes I feel like, I don't know, what's what's next in life? Just mm. I can't really say it feels good or bad, it just feels empty. So my question is actually empty how or what? to deal with There's emptiness. different kinds of emptiness, isn't it? What, and what, how would you describe yeah. this if you describe it a little bit more, give it some more texture? It's not a vacuum, isn't it? Because there's absolutely nothing and completely devoid of anything. It's, it's rather, rather a, a sad emptiness. Uh-huh. But I, I can't really say it's, I don't really feel sad or depressed, but rather negative than positive. Or not really vacuum. Yes, you're right, it's not really vacuum, it's more like this what's next in life when all these outer things are not fulfilling me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I've heard or read that that's a common thing that you like when you experience all these things and yeah they don't give you joy anymore. Then it has to come from the inside. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way it sounds, it seems like this is an intermediate phase. You know, all these the superficialities can have fallen to the wayside, as you said. You didn't really intend that and tick things off one after the other, but. It just became meaningless, isn't it? It just doesn't... It's pointless to do these uh, superficial activities, amassing consumer goods and just uh, going to superficial entertainments and distracting oneself all the time. And then, well, usually, of course, that's uh, it's already a sign that the heart is looking for something to replace the superficiality. And in most cases, then of course the heart uh, tends to lean towards something more meaningful, which of course is where the spiritual domain is waiting. And, and that, of course, and I think that's pro- is all what I've heard from you so far when we talked the other day. Also, that's already happening. Huh? You are you are you're kind of on track already. But what is me- I would ask you what is missing? So that you get a sense of, yeah, this emptiness, you know, of of having let all these superficial things go, is is replaced by something with more more meaning, more uh, 
value, you know, inner value, more texture, one could even say. And uh, would you not agree with that? Or? I do. I probably just don't know yet <laughs> how to fill this space. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing is, of course, maybe that you know, you, you know, maybe intellectually that this is what could happen, what might happen. But it's not quite, you're not quite there yet, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say I'm already like on the way there. Yes. Still making some turns left and right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in most people's cases when they, um, before they make a decision to embark on a particular spiritual path, or say or a Buddhist path or, or any other one, uh, usually there's a period of orientation where you look around a bit, you, you know, and probably I would think nowadays it's much more difficult to make these choices as it was, you know, when I was in your age, you know, when I was around 30. Um, there was also quite a bit of on offer, but there was no, there was no internet, and so, you know, the, the encounters you had were much more usually well, you could read something or through personal encounters, for example, my most important triggers on the spiritual fast actually, actually meeting people. That was how it came about. And I always read the books after, afterwards, you know. So nowadays, I think, like you were saying the other day, how did you find to sign on Google? Mm-hmm. So people go online and, and then they can find everything. The whole spiritual supermarket is out there. You know, how do you choose? what is for you, you know, what is really suited for you and resonates with you. And I think in that sense you, you cannot avoid to to uh, have a period of orientation just to be sure that it's a period and not endless. You're endlessly walking around, going around and trying this, trying that and looking for the ideal spiritual path, you know, or the ideal Buddhist teacher you know, waiting for the ideal situation or the, t- the ideal teacher to turn up. You can wait for a lifetime for that to happen. In Thailand, they, are, they always have this very nice this expression, which I like very much. They, they, they say, poor D. Poor D means good enough, a good enough monastery, <laughs> a good enough teacher, you know. Uh, and uh, which doesn't mean mediocre. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean mediocre. It just means don't come from your idealism, you know, and that you will meet the perfect person, you meet someone and your heart will open and you will fall to your knees and say, this is the one, you know, I devote my life to what he or she is um, suggesting to me. But there will come, there will have to be a, a time when, of course, then a commitment has to be made, you know, if you really want to reap the fruit of a spiritual path. Without a commitment, that is very difficult. And then you might just dip in here and dip in there, but you never really feel the full enrichment, you know, which Dharma, in our context, the Dhamma or the Dharma can provide, or other spiritual paths also, of course. There's there's many things which um, can give people a sense of deep meaning and... uh, Maybe what what the what the Dharma has as a kind of special 
advantage or maybe as an additive is uh, we can we can find out who we really are. You know, we can find who we are beyond the conditioned world or the distant world is not the conditioned world so much externally but the conditioned world inside of us or the conditioned world of our personality of our feelings, emotions, thoughts, patterns and so forth you know the whole thing which we've gotten um, accustomed to over a lifetime and naturally of course quite identified we take normally ourselves to be a person, a personality or a self and so forth and when things go fairly well that's, it's usually not a, a, a problem it starts to become problematic when we suffer either quite outrightly because something happens in us in our personal life which stirs us up we're losing a valuable uh, person or we're losing a job or our life is completely turned around upside down things like that could happen external events but it could also happen from the inside I mean what you're saying is more that it can more happened from the inside you know something started to not invest any more value in, in, in these superficial things and activities and so that's something really worthy to honor and and also be willing to endure a period of I don't know, you know it's better actually to do that to consciously acknowledge I don't really know right now what the next step will be you know well just trust I mean you've so far already trusted your intuition you know as you said you didn't constantly decide so that must have been more an intuitive sense isn't it mm. so you trusted that intuition so why not trust it further you know and also be willing to live with the not knowing, not quite knowing what is the next step. And just try to be content with that, you know. I don't really know right now. But it would be a mistake to force the issue, just to feel safe and secure again within yourself, you know. I think that would be not so good. Then you would override something potentially quite valuable, you know. One shouldn't underestimate that exactly those periods can be where the gems lie, you know, when you we don't quite know right now what's going to be the next step, but if we let it, if we trust and we stay in touch, you know, with our intuition we, we continue to practice awareness practices in particular then, I mean I'm confident, and this is of course me speaking but then of course, it's for you to discover that confidence in yourself also that something something good, something helpful and wholesome will emerge from that. It can't be otherwise, you know, unless uh, you react to a kind of panic emotion or, or, or this feeling of emptiness gets uh, called bad names and then it overwhelms you and if you, you can't bear this any longer you want some you want some more um, rhythm and blues in your life you know <laughs> some more action some more stuff so you so normally human beings are so uh, 
um, addicted to things, to stuff, activities, which trigger our senses, which trigger our cognitive mind to be occupied with things. But if I can allow just to be, just to quietly letting all this settle, you know, not in a panic, picking up things, just to be preoccupied. And sometimes we can observe that sometimes we just pick up a book because we have a few boring moments and before we know we're reading something or we're looking on the internet or whatever, listening to music or go and call somebody, you know, just to get over this kind of feeling of hmm, what now? Don't know what to do now. I feel a bit kind of lost or empty in myself. But these are, you know, these are not necessarily bad things, these little moments or periods when that kind of feeling comes. So if you can bear it a little longer, um, I would encourage you, Lena, to just to be, make friends with that, you know. Rather than saying something is wrong, you could call it wrong. And of course, if you call it wrong, then it will also become wrong, you know. And when you will reap the the repercussions of having it, having called it wrong and bad or shouldn't be. I don't want this. This doesn't feel good. Hmm? Previously, we followed the feel-good factor in life. Hmm? What felt good was good. But with the spiritual domain coming into our life, it stops being like that. So what doesn't feel good isn't necessarily bad, actually. So, you know, even something which feels a little challenging is not bad. Unless we call it that way. It can be, it can contain the very seeds, helps us to make the next step and grow and, and uh, proceed on our spiritual journey. It's a bit of a long answer, but does that speak to you? Or? Yeah? Trust part is very important to remind me again. Just yes. Trust the process and my intuition. Thank yeah. you. Robert? Mm. He was reading a Janamara and he was he was talking about that and I don't know if I read this correctly but it seemed, he seemed to be saying that in, in deeper samadhi or in jhana you it, it's only let's say it's only in um, investigation in when samadhi is not very deep when you're investigating when you uh, that you can encounter and I'll use these two words interchangeably and probably wrong the rhoda or the deathless that in in deep uh, in deep immersion you can't encounter it is that correct. Yeah, well, that's why it's called full absorption. Apana samadhi is the full absorption. The mind is completely absorbed into an object. And so there is no, there's no reflection, there's no thought process, nothing. It's just complete immersion in the object. That's what, I think that's what he's referring to. That's also my understanding. And if you abandon... If you're completely absorbed, then you, you, you wouldn't know anything else. You know, it's just like... I mean, a mundane example, you're sitting there, maybe you're doing some text work on, on the computer or you're reading a book which really fascinates you, you're so immersed, you don't, 
notice what's going on, someone who might come into the room, you say, would you like a cup of tea? You don't even hear it, you know, because you're so absorbed in your text, you know, that you're reading. And so that's a bit more mundane comparison. Mm. So that's why um, the, the full absorption, but that's not a, that's what, of course, it shouldn't mean that full absorption doesn't have its place, you know. Many people who specifically teach that, like, for example, Ajahn Brahm in Australia, he's a jhana enthusiast, um, they use it more as a kind of springboard, you know, for deep investigation. This is usually the kind of claim you, you hear from people who, who uh, teach jhana, but um, I don't think it's necessary, actually. Uh, our teacher, Lumpur he would speak about Upachara Samadhi is, is enough, what we call neighborhood concentration, you know, which is, uh, is not the full absorption. And so what is neighborhood concentration? You know, these terms can also be a bit kind of, again, leaving us trying to find, uh, you know, what is neighborhood concentration. Um, um, Sometimes then also, you know, the way he would put it is like, you know, not good enough again, the concentration and the calm is good enough that you're not in your automatic discursive thinking process. So that's, that has really calmed down. And then from the stillness, from the stillness of the heart or the mind, then you can investigate. You can even start by bringing something up if you really find that promising, you know, direct your mind towards it. And then you ask yourself, how about that? You know, and, and then also sense the resonances which you get from your investigation, not just don't let it become a, another linear cognitive process as we do when we try to solve a problem in, say, in the academic field or so. You know. But more the, the, the way of a contemplative is, is different, where we... we we ponder something or we inquire into something and more value actually lies in the question itself than rather to find quick answers. You know, just put something in there and just be, become very quiet, live with a question, you know, and, and, and explore what it has to tell you. In deep absorption, uh, if, if I find it, if I... I can give up focusing on my breath, right? I don't have to do that. I think that stops by itself. Right. So then you're deeply fully absorbed. What am I experiencing then? Because it feels like... Then, of course, people get disorientated because (laughs) sometimes people also get afraid. Of course, that is already then a movement out of it if you have an emotion of fear coming out. But usually when you have the sense that your breath is disappearing, even your, your sense, the sense of your body disappearing, uh, then the recommendation is, well, connect with that, what is, what is still, what is being aware. There is awareness there. Where often that's the only refuge you have then. Indeed, it is the only refuge. And, and, that is and that's, your, that's what you connect with. Because rather than going into a panic trying to search for something to fix your attention because you can't live within, within this kind of nothingness. Um, although it's not quite a nothingness anymore when you're already in a kind of slight panic and 
uncertainty, you know what to do. Already the, the normal mind has tried to get a foot in the door, so to speak. But then let, let all this go, let the panic calls and everything go, and just, and just uh, take the refuge in, in awareness. Lumpusamedo always uses this very nice phrase, use awareness as your refuge then. That is then definitely, at the very latest, <laughs> you could use it even before that as your refuge, you know. In fact, all the time we can use it as our refuge, even in daily life, in the complexities of, of, of um, you know, normal life. We can use, sometimes we need a little bit of helpful aids. We need to, maybe the body and the breath to use as additional aids to connect with awareness because modern life can be so overpowering and overwhelming. But that's a very good phrase to remember and return to, you know, Remember, we have this quality of mindfulness, of awareness, which is a, a protection and a, and, a, and a helpful guide in our daily activities as well. Not just in deep absorption on the meditation cushion. You know. So it should cover the whole spectrum of our life and our spiritual life. In fact, ideally we wouldn't even make a separation between our life and the spiritual life. You know that if the spiritual, our spiritual interest is that sincere that it becomes our main orientation, everything else is second. What I meet a lot, very often on retreats, is that people want to stuff some Dhamma, Buddhist teaching, into their daily life, into their already busy daily life. <laughs> and I always fear, well, that's not such a good idea, you know. We already have very complex lives with many, many things. I said, now just get the right spiritual technique and method also teaching and then I'll be okay. No, we much better the other way around. Have your spiritual priorities set? Or ask yourself, is that really my priority? Is that where, where I want to go, where I want to orient towards in my life? And if the answer is yes, then everything else, how you conduct your life, how your livelihood, your family life, how you spend your free time, where you go, how you spend your holidays, everything is, is serving that, you know, as in the position of serving rather than pulling you by the nose and, and having a, the spiritual techniques, the methods, the meditation, just as an, as an extra, an add-on to all the other things that... Um, I'm very pessimistic. I think that will not take you very far. It might help you maybe in times of turbulences to find a bit of calm and, <coughs> you know, and so forth, but it will not really transform you and change you from the, from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So that's important. The, important, the question of priorities, you know, what is really the priority in your life and is the Dharma, in this context of course it's the Dharma, is that the priority or not quite yet? And we have to be honest, you know, <laughs> definitely be honest about this. Michael? Um, so, you know, when I'm being really mindful, eventually it starts to come almost 
higher into my brain, like it, like you know. Um, so I was wondering, like, what to do when it's when that happens. Cause it's, it's time into your brain. Yeah, it's like it'll. What happens exactly? I don't know. I guess you like, get a headache, or I can't say not a headache, but it's just like it comes almost like when should I stop doing this? Mm-hmm. I guess in a way, yeah. It shouldn't become a strain, really. Are you not talking about everyday mindfulness, or are you talking about a, a period of meditation where you sit and have your eyes closed? And no, kind of after, like a while after. Maybe like, like um, last night, last puja, I had a really, really nice meditation, but I didn't know when. Um, like, I should like kind of lay it down a bit. Was it just pure observation? You lie down in bed and then? <laughs> yeah, it's still kind of happening, like, the same thing. I didn't get much sleep last night, but I could have been because I was sick. But, but you see, you're just saying the meditation was really good, you enjoyed the meditation, yeah. then you went to bed, and then you had that kind of strain in your brain when you went to bed? Um, I don't know, but, like, it's just kind of really active, I guess, like, catching every little little thing that's ah, going okay, on. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good idea when you go to when you go to bed and fall asleep. Go to bed mindfully, but not, of course, activate your thoughts. Using your body to to calm down, you know, being mindful of your body processes, breath, of course, also, and then you will glide up, glide into sleep quite effortlessly, quite quickly, also usually. Well, I do. Um, Usually I don't get activated very much through my meditation so that then, you know, when I come out and sit down or lie down that my, my thoughts are very active. Usually it's not the case. But maybe you have been very intently trying to follow and monitor your thought processes. Could that be um. during the meditation and then continue it afterwards? Um, I wasn't necessarily going with any thought. I was just, you know, taking note of all of them and then kind of like backing up from just to see them. And um, my mom would comment on the backing up, like, like kind of comment on what I'm doing. I keep putting it in different ways, and I just, I just looked at it. But um, I guess after it continued doing that, it's like kind of commenting on. What are you doing? What I'm doing? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I can't that's stop a, it. That's not true, yes. Mm-hmm. And also, well, if it happens, you just let it, let your mind, let, let it alone, you know, don't wrestle with it. Don't try to make it stop, because you notice what happens then if you try to, oh, I don't want, I want to go to sleep now, now I have this, this, in, you know, incessant thinking going on. Best is to leave your mind alone when you go to sleep. Provided you want to go to sleep, <laughs> you don't want to just lie there and think about yourself. Then best is not to, also not to engage with resistance. You know, I don't like this. I'm supposed to be sleeping, and I can't sleep with all this. And then you, because in that way you put oil into the fire, and then it will just continue to torment you. This is sometimes people have also in normal life. You know, people who carry worries from their work life carry it home and then 
and they lie down eventually. Usually they're not meditators and then the mind keeps spinning. Huh? So, and <coughs> for them very difficult to put the burden down and just stop with that. You know? But as a meditator one should be able to do that. Just don't, get, don't engage. Just let the thinking die by itself. You can't force it, you know. Forcing is usually trying to force it is usually a form of aversion, you don't like it. And aversion is the is the famous oil in the fire. As soon as you come from aversion, you make it stronger, you give it energy, in other words. So let it let it subside. And give it time. Okay, so say, okay, if it needs an hour, I'm ready. I don't need to sleep so much. Sometimes also, you know, you get you get energy, I can imagine that you you got some energy going in your meditation, so that's why. Maybe you went to bed too early. Um, it, it, you know? At one point, my heart, like I just, something came, my heart started beating really fast. Yeah? Of, yeah, so I was, yeah. I was a bit worried going to bed, you know, I'd stay up, you know, I didn't yeah. want to get some sleep, yeah. Yes. Also, I'd like to ask, is there any, like, mindfulness, techniques that you recommend or anything like <coughs> labeling you know some sort of stuff like that well name labeling is the technique I think we spoke about it some time ago okay. did I mention it when um, you were there I, you might have but I don't remember it's a, it's a technique which um, in Burma has been taught by a well known meditation master called Mahasi Saira originally and some other Meditation teachers have taken this on and passed it on. They, of course, swear by it. I'm not so convinced. I, tr- I tried it out. And uh, I find the labeling can be a, a very good technique when your mind is really unruly and really restless. And really, you know, uh, you find it, it's all over the place. And you could determine, okay, I want to really note, make a note of whatever, what is happening. I always compare it to, it's like having crutches, you know, when you, after you had a, an, a leg operation, you have to start walking again on crutches to learn how to walk properly again. So similarly, uh, I wouldn't recommend that the labeling technique is something you do forever and ever as your, you know, your foundation of practice. But under certain conditions, it can be helpful, you know. I've used it, for example, also in walking meditation, sometimes you use a mantra, like the mantra Bhutto or other simple mantras, not too complicated. Fixing the mind to an additional concept, ideally a wholesome concept like Bhutto or Sati or Dhammo or whatever, uh, I wouldn't use any, I mean, I, you could use anything else, but I would choose a wholesome object, even though it shouldn't have too much meaning so you don't start to think about it and start another cognitive pro- process about this um, mantra. But like a mantra can also tie your mind to that and it prevents discursive thought to get too active. And then you will notice then it after a while, the system calms down. You know, the thoughts come down, you calm down, the breath comes down, the body comes down, and, and you feel uh, at least a little bit more peaceful. So, 
Labeling is one, mantra is another, but these are helpful aids and, and which can use when certain conditions call for it, you could say. You know. Or even doing walking meditation, what I've done also is uh, counting the steps with every breath, you know, in-breath and out-breath. Um, because I found, on, I found at one point that in walking meditation, my mind is especially unruly and slips away very quickly because you're out there and you're walking and your senses are quite open, huh? you don't have, have your eyes closed. So then it's a bit more of a challenge to stay with it. Mm-hmm. So then you can determine, okay, I, I count the, the, the steps I do with every breath. And that ties your attention to what you're actually doing in the present, which of course is always the issue, is always the present. What is now, you know, what is happening now, rather than speculating about something yesterday or tomorrow. So, so if you wanted, you could exper- experiment like that. And if you experiment with that, I would suggest either you choose it when it, it's calling for it, when you're, you're, you think, oh no, my mind is so restless, I need to tire. It's just like a whacking a, a post in the, in the ground, you know. And uh, there's this image which you have in the Buddhist scriptures where uh, somebody whacked a post in the ground and it has five dogs connected with it on their leashes, you know. Mm. And so first these dogs, they run, go wild and want to rush away, but they can't because they're tied to this post in the ground. And so eventually they will they will calm down and then they will lie down and they become quiet because they give up. And it's similar with your you know, your defilements, your restless activities of the mind. First it will might rebel a little bit, but if you persist and you say, No, I've determined for the next half hour or so I do this, you will notice that things will subside. And because you are only uh, you only have a strong intention initially you're not interfering in between and fighting with the process, you see, because that creates... Then the dogs get up again and start barking and, and pulling at their, at their leashes to get free from the post. So you just make the firm determination, that is the post, whack it into the ground, stay with your meditation object and then let, let the dogs do what they want to do until they calm down and lie down next to, next to the post. And, and also uh, another little thing is once, once one decides that don't, uh, during the meditation period, don't change in a half an hour of whatever you do, three quarters of an hour, in between, back and forth, using different techniques. If you decide for one, stay with it. Because if, you, if you're oscillating around with different methods within a half an hour or three quarters of an hour, then again, it's an expression of restlessness, uncertainty, doubt, and so forth, and that brings you into trouble. So again, one of the dogs, you know, you could call them restlessness or doubt, they, they're pulling you away. So um, Once you've made a decision, stay with it, and then you can hold a review afterwards. How was it? Did this work, you know, was it, 
too much? Was I making? Was I putting too much effort? Was I too uptight? Maybe my re- way of doing resolves or determinations is too too tense. It can be. It could also be too loose and half-hearted. Well, I'll see how it goes. If not, then I'll change. <laughs> I do something else. So in that way, you know. But in that way, you get to know yourself. You know how you function, how quickly you give up, how strongly you apply effort. Can you arrive at a sense of balance in your effort? You know, where the effort is just, say, again, poor D, good enough, at a certain equilibrium. You know, there is no no way of putting it. But there is, you know, the perfect balance, so to speak. I wouldn't be able to describe that to you. You, know? mm. you might have heard the simile, uh, um, which also is actually a, a little story in the scriptures, where the Buddha talked to a monk who was a musician before he took on the monk's robes, and he saw him, you know, practicing so intensely, walking meditation. He had, yet uh, his feet started to bleed, and when he questioned him. Well, this monk was saying that he put a lot of effort in his walking meditation. And then Buddha gave this, this simile, well, how was it when you were, before you ordained, you were playing the lute, you know, the string instrument. When, you, when, these, when these strings were tuned too tight, how did that sound, you know? Did it sound good? Because he had to say, no, it sounded horrible. Well, if they weren't, if they weren't tuned, Tight enough to lose. How did that sound? It sounded different, but also didn't sound beautiful at all. So he gave him that simile, you know. So you have to tune your energy, application of energy in the right way. So you have a good, yeah, this sounds right. Might not be perfect, but it sounds right. It sounds good. Is that? Is yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Could you speak a little, bit, a little about uh, non-duality in Buddhism? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. And, well, I mean, does it have? Does it is is the idea that that both the interior and the exterior uh, are, all exist in the mind, and and that is. The elimination of duality. I don't get it. Say a bit more. <laughs> it's what's external, right? Exists in my mind, right? And what's it? Everything that's internal, my thoughts, my feeling, my mind, exists in my mind. Does that therefore eliminate the duality between myself and other? Well, we certainly function in dualistic ways, don't we? In life. I mean, dualistic in a way that isn't. And this usually is based on a sense of self, isn't it? There's me and other. 
me and you and all the other and all the other people here. An expression of course the, of the egoic self of the limited self is the sense of separation we experience. Huh? So that's why other people we call them friends, we call them lovers or you know family friendly or hostile towards us and so forth. And, and this is of course based on normal dualistic approach in life. Huh? We make this distinction between us and us, us and them, all the time. And of course, very often that's very threatening. Huh? People can be, become very threatening for us, other people, just the way they appear, just the way they look at us. You know, their body language. In many different ways, it can be, a, can be a threat to us. And it's often said that people who who look beyond that, that sense of egoic identity, which implies a sense of separation. So people who don't have that anymore have gone beyond this and see themselves in everyone, then then all this this dualistic way of perception is gone, is, is finished. Other people are not a threat ourselves, so they we see ourselves uh, in each and everyone, you know. It doesn't matter, you know, we don't make even distinction in genders or so. Every being, every sentient beings, even animals, you know, we connect with and we see ourselves. We see there's another sentient being and, and uh, it's just like us. But that's really then felt, it's not just as I'm speaking now, of course this is more coming from theory. I'm speaking about somebody else you know, who might have really realized that in totality. Well, that's very often what people refer to. I heard once that one person, it was not a Buddhist teacher, put it very beautifully. He said, when I look within, I realize or recognize that I'm empty. And when I look without, I recognize or realize that I'm everything. So when I look within, I'm empty, or I'm nothing, in fact the phrase was nothing, when I look within, I'm nothing, so or empty of self. When I look outside, I'm everything. So there's a, you know, this goes both ways. Huh? When there's no more self, no more egoic identification, that's that nothing, that emptiness. But then it's automatically at the same time, there's a fullness there when you're looking out, you're you know, fully connected with all other sentient beings. So you recognize yourself in everyone, in every, in every other sentient being. So that's the expression of love, going out and going in is the recognition of empty of self, huh? of anatta. So obviously that's a statement of a very evolved human being making such a statement. If it's, well, anybody can parrot it, but if it's coming from experience, and obviously this person who did this came from experience, can put it, could put it like that. And that also I would call that, my limited understanding, I would call that, that's the overcoming of the dualistic perspective in life, in a more practical sense, you know. Empty <coughs> self, 
and fully connected to the medium of love and compassion. Simple, huh? <laughs> In theory. <laughs> question um, to this okay, expense. Um, that's again like a personal thing there's okay. I'm struggling a little bit with <clears throat> the feeling of separation and connectness. Connection. Connection, yes. Because on the one hand side I, I see in, in beings, or I wish that people are happy, and that um, just all beings are happy. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm sorry. But on the other side, um, I also feel separated because I don't really share the values of society anymore and um, I don't really fit in anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I fit in before. Before I, I felt like I was I was part of the average, let's just say the average. I just wasn't happy. And um, the more I get to this spiritual lifestyle or the values which are important to me, I think that I should feel more connected. And I do sometimes, like I see things in people, but I also feel like separated because there are just very rare people living this life. So how how can you deal with the struggle of separation and connection? Like, I don't know, do, do you understand what I mean? I think um, in general, yes. I mean the separation, the, the separation aspect which you mentioned uh, initially of especially when, when you don't feel connected to say a world around you or a society around you which according to your perspective doesn't seem to express or share your values. So there's a kind of sense of separation which actually doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Mm-hmm. And because that separation in the most extreme sense could even fit to uh, reject these people, you know, they're stupid or they're ignorant. You know. Sometimes you, get, you, meet, you meet people who embark on their spiritual path who actually speak like that. You know, they feel, because they're now spiritual, they feel better and then, and, you know, you elevate themselves. And of course that's, that's a patent recipe to feel separated. They might not even feel that because they're so full of themselves that they don't even feel or suffer under that separation. But you are expressing also that you know the sense of separation makes you makes you suffer and unhappy. And um, to to have a, a sense of connection with other human beings, of course, that's uh, something we can establish through putting uh, our, again, our orientation right, you know, to see what we have in, what do we have in common with other people, in our humanity, what we share, you know, we share, we share this world together, the planet, we share the kind of concerns we have and 
we share the joys and sufferings of this world with everybody. It doesn't matter if that person is spiritual or not, we share with everyone, you know. So in that sense, to see ourselves, as we were just speaking about non-duality, see ourselves and others also on a much more mundane level can be very, very real and very, you know, <coughs> rewarding, you know. Just, you know, people have compassion for, and that's an, it's a way of having compassion for people who don't even see yet how they make themselves suffer through their ignorance. That's a great, a great reason for compassion, you see. All these people keep recreating their own suffering because they're, they're looking in the, wrong, in the wrong direction for happiness. And they wonder all the time why they can't find it. So that's terrible suffering, isn't it? So that could, theoretically, bring up compassion in you. And compassion is connective tissue. It connects you with others, isn't it? And feel, as we say, I always like to say compassion is to feel with. It's not feeling sorry or feeling pity or no mitleid in German, huh? but a mitgefühl, so to feel with other beings, to feel the predicament we share as humans, and so compassion can overcome that sense of separateness. And compassion goes, of course, hand in hand with we call metta, loving kindness, or kindness, and kindness. Um, this is basically the channel through which compassion can express itself. If there's no human warmth, you know, and a general uh, sense of benevolence directed towards other beings, it's very difficult also to manifest compassion. You know, so. so if that's something which you, at the moment is, is at your fingertips or a theme for you, then I'd like to encourage you, just look out where you, you can, you know, maybe see the indicators, see when your critical mind comes and investigate what is it actually in my day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience what separates me from others? What is it actually? Would you, would you know? Or is this too, too intimate a question to ask you here? Could you say that? Or would you need some more time to ponder it? Because there is, if you have a feel, there are causes for everything, isn't it? There are causes for the feeling of separateness. And usually, of course, who's creating these causes? <laughs> it's us, isn't it? There's no, no one outside who does it for us. So, it's separateness <coughs> has, has, has reasons, has causes. And, and very often, of course, we can then, after a bit of close introspection and pondering, we can find out, aha. So I don't want to assume anything, suggest anything to you, but if it's, it's to you, up to you to find out what that is, you know. Because maybe that way leads you to see, okay, no, that's... If I do that, I cement down my sense of separation, you know, because it, it can't be otherwise. So maybe if I look at other people, with a critical eye, with you know, evaluate everybody. They always see who is better than me, who is worse than me, who is equal to me, and these kind of things, you know. There's even a Buddhist word for that mechanism. If we do this all the time, we have separation all the time. That's quite natural. You know? But the important thing is we have to see this, you know. It's, otherwise it's just theory, just words. We have to see this. 
and when we also feel feel that makes us unhappy because when we feel it then we usually want to change you know I mean it's how it works for me if it's just theory and I say, might say yes a good idea and sounds okay convincing but not until I feel it I make something I don't want this anymore I'm fed up with this recreating the sense of separation again and again. I want to establish connection. You know? And that of course can have then eventually very hands-on expressions, you know. Maybe moving towards people and making gestures of connection, you know. Just if you maybe before would be a bit more shy or hold back, or well, make a step forward, establish connection and then you will be surprised about the little miracles which can happen through the connective tissue which you already have, which you might not have seen yet. And uh, of course one important area is the, the connections we, we have then as a very special form of connection within the, uh, what we call the Sangha, <coughs> or the wider Sangha network, you know, with like-minded people. That adds an additional element, you know, when we when we connect with people who share the same interest as, as we do, because then also the quality of of exchange of sharing uh, impressions and experiences, contemplation and so forth, they they become uh, very relevant, very important, and also very enriching. And so that's what I found that. Uh, people with whom I share these values, um, also that kind of connection usually lasts a long time, you know, when, when you haven't really connected with somebody on that, on that uh, level, you have a, a good hard connection, usually these are, these are very long-lasting relationships, even if you don't see each other for a long time, and I know it from fellow monastics, for example, I've lived with maybe just a short period, a few months or so in one part of the world, and, and they now live somewhere else, or someone who lives in New Zealand, I've seen him last time, 10 years ago. When we get together and start talking, it's just as if we stopped talking yesterday. <laughs> you know, it's like that. So it's a kind of wonderful proof of the value which lies in spiritual community, you know, and the, the Buddha called spiritual friends like-minded friends, Kalyanamitta, which Kalyana means good or noble, so to seek out. And I could imagine, uh, Lena, that applies for you as you know your previous life context and the people you might still feel, yeah, we share nice memories together, but they don't quite give me that kind of um, quality, which, and this is not, an, of course, an arrogant statement that coming from I'm better than thou, but it's just it's just fact, you know, I'm just not interested in superficiality any longer. So then you have noble friends, spiritual friends who share, well, of course in our view it's the most noble and the most uh, uh, beneficial things you can share together, isn't it, which, which <coughs> is beyond suffering, which develops our heart. In my view, nothing, nothing could be, could be better, you know, for our lives in general.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that do I, is that talking to you or yeah? Yes. state of mind as Lena after college where I felt uh, a little uh, disconnected uh, from the things that I used to enjoy and people uh, but I th- I, like I started volunteering at Vipassana Center and uh, I, I came out of that state of mind uh, where you associate with like-minded people mm. Yeah. Just being part of the community. I mm. think we're in general we're social beings, and it's important uh, to yeah. be around people. Mm. But of course, one one does make choices as a social being, unless you're just kind of drifting through life. Of course, that many people might do that. Just and then end up with a kind of lowest denominator, you know, ending up in the pub, drinking beer and mm-hmm. having silly talks. But if you don't want that, then you choose you choose your the people you associate with more closely, very carefully, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or you feel drawn towards them naturally. And that happens in, in the Goinka Center when you were serving there. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh-huh. like I was quite young. Uh, uh, but also, I think after I got uh, in a, like a happier state of mind, mm-hmm. um, like I could um, find myself with uh, uh, people who are more materialistic, but I wasn't uh, judging their lifestyle anymore because uh, those people still had the good qualities yeah, and they were, just uh, good, good friends. So yeah. it's a state that passes, I would say. Yeah. Even though it seems uh, that it won't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, sometimes also when comes a time when I've heard people speaking about that, then they, um, it concerns them a bit, you know, that because as you you said, they they feel that these are good people, you know we shared some good things in our life, not just, you know, drinking and boozing in pubs, but also some good things in life. So I don't want to just kind of uh, dismiss them. But on the other hand, uh, I can't keep on in the same old way. Mm-hmm. So a kind of conflict arises <coughs> then, you know, what to do about that. I mean, my personal experience was that it kind of naturally resolved itself, actually. Um, of course, this is a strong statement. If you take on the monk's rope, then naturally, um, some people wouldn't um, wouldn't have it. You know? <laughs> um, but even before that happened, uh, for me, it was a kind of gradual process. Thankfully, it was not a very sudden decision. 
Um, when I, my interest moved more towards the spiritual domain, and then also my relationships and friendships were formed almost, almost effortlessly with people who shared that interest. I just couldn't sit around in pubs any longer and things like that, which I used to do as a young person quite a bit, actually. <laughs> so uh, it just is finished, you know. And then if people want to do that, if that's the only way to connect with you, then of course, sorry, then our life does go in different directions. That's quite clear. Then. That's uh, also natural, isn't it? We're looking back on our life, even the ones where you were not that old yet, as I am. We, we see that all, all the time this happens, huh? Are you still friends with the ones from kindergarten? No, I guess not. Huh? Nobody is. <laughs> but it, even after kindergarten, school, primary school, uh, you know, high school, university, I have one friend left from university. He's a very good friend, actually. I'm actually uh, working. 30 years. And it's only because he became a meditator. <laughs> he was on some of my retreats here. Actually, my friends are from school, and luckily they became meditators. So see, you see. <laughs> we're still friends. Yeah, yeah, makes it easy. Yeah. And it's not that I put a condition on my friendships, you know. Yeah. You're only a friend of mine if you stop meditating now. <laughs> <laughs> Which just kind of happens, you know. You just lose interest in superficial <coughs> nonsense talks and killing time with, you know, things which are pointless. So naturally then people gravitate away from you and others gravitate towards you, you know. And then kind of new circles of friends come into existence. You might still feel a little sad, or the shame. You know, this person or that person, we shared some good times together, but that's how it is. Life moves in, this, in these ways, doesn't it? Um, we, how does someone? I asked another one of the residents here about it, but um, in body contemplation, or con like, how exactly do you do that? Do you visualize the the different parts of the body and yeah? Just well, there's a there's a practice of these thirty two parts. Okay. Have you ever? It must should be in the chanting book, huh? I think it's even uh, it's a part of the chanting repertoire. Okay. That you can yeah that you can do. What usually helps if you have a bit of a good visual image of these parts. Okay. If it's just words, it doesn't really do work very well. So you have to really as vivid as you can. Ideally. You go to a hospital and ask if you can participate when there's an autopsy performed. Anyone do this in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not so easy in Western countries, I've, I've learned. 
But for many medical students have to do that. So the problem is that they only allow medical students. They don't allow outsiders. But we were at one point in the monastery in northern England, we had a Sri Lankan doctor who supported us and he he knew why we wanted to do that, so he invited us to come to one of his autopsies. And then of course you you're getting a more clearer first hand impact of women powerful then of course. Um, what you see there and also because the other senses are involved, your smell is also can be quite a challenging <coughs> thing. So you have to make you have to be clear if you really want to do that. It's a powerful experience. But then of course you have it all. You have it, you have seen it, because they open the body up and take all the organs out. And there they are. You know that what is in the te- written the text becomes a more vivid uh, reality. Mm. And then you and usually the effect it just ha- is supposed to have this kind of very sobering effect and it, that's what it especially it has that when you attended such a such a procedure in hospital, you feel very sobered, you know, after that. They come so that's the reality of the body also. We just usually concerned just about skin, isn't it? Externals, but that's there too. It's just as the saying goes, beauty is only skin deep. Very thin layer, isn't it? And underneath that is not so beautiful. That's why this practice is called asupa. The contemplation of the not beautiful. Supa is beautiful. Asupa. Not beautiful. Um if one goes, wants to go really deeply into this practice, I would recommend, though, to have supervision, you know, rather than go and do it on one's own back, so to speak, because it could really rattle your feathers in a very unpleasant way and might disturb you and, and lead you into emotional upheavals which you don't really, you know, maybe prepared for. So... Um, I've I've heard this again of those monks, monks who have done it un, un uh, supervised and it didn't have very good results actually. When you say supervised, what exactly? Are you uh, an experienced person, a friend, spiritual friend who can help you, someone who has also uh, practiced with that, experience with that, and can like just guide clue you. them in on it. What's hmm? Just like talk, clue them in on it sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Do you have other friends in your farmland who can speak about such issues? <laughs> I, I know of like one other Buddhist who's a, uh, a yoga teacher, I think he would talk to me about it. One other in yeah. the whole of New Fountain. <laughs> There's a few other people that yeah. in a meditation group all we have is like a, do you know a Shambhala? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. we have one Shambhala. There's a Shambhala group in, in your group. Yeah, very small. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know what their practice is like, if they actually are concerned with such things. This is a very... It seems to be something, you know... I mean, I also, I don't know other traditions so well, but in Theravada, this is kind of very much... This is the second part of the body contemplation. So the first part is just breath, postures, activities, you know, daily activities. And the second part is then the analytical part, where you're going into seeing the not beautiful, then seeing the various phases of decay and eventually the decomposing of the body into its elements. <coughs> so with all of that, I think supervision would be very 
a very good idea rather than trying to get this done by answer. Okay. So maybe then you can have a hotline with Tisara now when you do that. In the <laughs> Um, I, I, is a part of in the Theravada tradition that a body contemplation is a it's a very important part, right? Yeah, it seems so. Yeah. Okay. Is there a third step? You said it's like the second. Is there a third? Second. This is the second. What is the second? You step? said like is the first thing. Oh, I guess you. I don't think there will be a third because you said like. Is the first step is just like feeling and then like your oh, breathing? Oh no! And what I'm uh, speaking about was that is uh, the area in the mindfulness discourse <coughs> concerned with the body has these two parts, and all of it. Eventually, the trajectory of it is to realize, you know, that we're not the body. Mm-hmm. The body is just a composition of of elements. I mean, the very at the end, at the very end, you come to the to the area of elements. You know, even, you could even say nowadays that the particles and atoms and the most minute parts of of what this body is is, is made of. You'd even come to include other elements, the space element. There's a lot of space in this body as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at it to a subatomic level, for example. But uh, and body contemplation so is to undermine that sense of solid, a solid self, identification with this as who I am, this body. But then there's these other areas as well as feelings. The whole area of feeling, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feelings, and so forth to, to investigate that. And then the mental states, thinking processes, to investigate how invested we are there with our sense of me, mine, self, ego, and so forth. These, these are the three main areas. And the fourth, fourth area in the mindfulness teachings is to the investigation, eh? to look, take parts of the Buddhist teaching and use them as as tools for your investigation. For example, you know, they, and we're speaking about um, not-self, seeing that I'm not the body, I'm not my feelings, I'm not my thoughts. So that's one of the so-called characteristics. You can use other characteristics, which is the sense of unsatisfactoriness in conventional conventional life where we're just picking and choosing all the time. Huh? We choose that what we want and we push away what we don't want. We're constantly oscillating between these two sides and never really arriving at true contentment. And so that's what's called, what's called simply dukkha. Huh? That's the dukkha fact. And then impermanence, uncertainty, you know, that if you're looking at it with great scrutiny at life's experience and we see that's all there is. You know, the only constancy is that everything is impermanent, you know, it's in constant 
movement and change changes all there is. You know, from the subatomic level to the more grosser levels um, of the body and also to the <coughs> mind. It's only change. So these things we contemplate, of course, not only intellectually. A lot of these suggestions we have, intellectually, they're not very difficult to understand. And it's a good idea to, to <coughs> know them, you know, what is there, what is in the teaching body. And then find that which is, which is working for you, you know, what you really speak, you could say almost what speaks to you, rather than having the idea you should put everything to practice, it can become a huge mountain of things on your to-do list, you know. And ideally, you want to be, keep things most simple, as simple as you can, you know, rather than making this a big kind of uh, research project, a complex research project. I mean, it is a research project, but it's a simple one, if you can. Just, you know, looking at impermanence itself can be so rewarding when we learn to not cling, not to attach, not to grasp after things which can't be grasped, can't be attached to because they're always slipping, slipping away. And the very act of grasping is unpleasant, it's painful, unsatisfactory. So that leads them to a kind of general attitude in life to not grasp, to non-grasping, more leading a life of letting go and not grasping after things and wanting to own things, to possess things, to make them, to make them mine. Huh? Um, and it's not only material things, also immaterial things. We want to own everything. Ignorance wants to own everything which we encounter. But the awakened heart lets everything go because there's nothing nothing we can own, nothing we can possess. Rompasameda once said, it's really stuck with me very clearly. If it moves, don't trust it. <laughs> That's really putting it down to the basic, isn't it? If it moves, don't trust it. Profound, if you think about it. I don't think too much about it. <laughs> Where do we hold on then? Just on the next question. said like don't like switch up what you're doing in meditation like go to a different thing than you were originally sat down to meditate with but could like could you just do pure observation or should you pure observation of a certain particular area like the body senses or thoughts clearly? I didn't quite get the first the very first bit you said um you said like when you sit down and do meditation, you stay with one thing. Like don't don't do that. Yeah. And switch over. But could you just purely ob- observe everything? Not like switching, but whatever kind of comes up. Just yes, observe. Yes, that's, that's a valid practice in itself. Okay. Yeah. 
really call that, that's very often called bare awareness or pure awareness, you just using that directly as a refuge. But you have to make sure that that's also a realistic option for you, that it's not just a nice idea, because that concept is floating around quite a bit these days in meditation circles. But how are, well, you can definitely, I recommend, try it out, you know. But how are you with this, you know, if you say, I just, I just am purely aware of my inner processes without interfering, without, without the glue of attachment. You know? mm. And then see what happens. What does your mind do if you give yourself that directive? What happens? Simple. And that, if that works for you, and if you can really stay with it, very good. I would say, keep going. But if you feel just for a second, and then then maybe some training is asked for. That's why the mindfulness in the more formal discourse, they're always speaking of training. We're training the ability to be mindful. So it has these two sides. There's one side, yes, just taking awareness as a refuge. But then also, there seems to be most people Anyway, have this impression. My mind is so untrained. I need to. I need to learn to focus, to hold the mind, keep it on a particular meditation object, sustain the the ability to focus and so forth. And that has to be done too. It's not a, not it becoming an end in itself. But that's also important. You know? Otherwise, you just, well, just be aware and you know go with the flow. And, Follow your heart, that doesn't really work. So, you know yourself, you know know what you can do, what's realistic, what works. In the end of the day, what works is (laughs) what's working for me, you know, it's a decisive question, of course. Not what works for me, it might be completely different than what's working for you at this time, at this given time, any given time. Okay. So in that way, you know, the authority is given to you in the first place, which, of course, then, well, I said uh, supervision in the, in the realm of asupa practice, but supervision is generally good, you know, as you have a meditation group, you know, then seek, seek, <coughs> exchange, you know, seek feedback, ask other people how they're doing, you know, so you really uh, enter a kind of investigation where you also have other people giving you some some advice or some some feedback on, on your experience or on your views also the views you hold it's a good thing you can be lucky you have a, a group in your, in your area actually mm. um, so when you I find like if I'm in awareness there's not uh, there's nothing really to talk about though that's the thing like what what's there to talk about because if you're if you the verbalization is only a doubt if you're asking a question about it like when you're in that pure awareness there's nothing there's no nothing to doubt I guess so I don't know what I would what I would speak of well that's a doubt if there's nothing if there's nothing to if you're just abiding in pure awareness and there's nothing to doubt so there's no problems and then you know then just be happy with that. And otherwise, uh, you're creating a, 
uh, a new problem for yourself, or that's or a, a subtle form of doubt comes. So what now? You know, what am I supposed to do now? Is this maybe it isn't pure awareness? Am I purely aware, or am I not purely aware? You know, you're getting in these kind of things. You know. Remember, it's all about letting go, letting go of, of you know, even letting go of particular goals in mind. You know. Uh, you want to reach to with your pure awareness practice just attend to the moment as best as you can and let things be mm-hmm. just let things be don't talk to yourself let things be if your mind starts <coughs> to talk then just note that and rest rest with this the cultivated awareness and then when you let things be in that way, then they can let go. It's a natural outcome, really. You're not doing that. It's a natural process. <coughs> if you're letting things be, then things are letting you go. Rather than you controlling the letting go process. Mm. This is sometimes a misunderstanding. People think that they are doing the letting go. But if you are letting go as an act of will, you are controlling. And that's not letting go. Then you're putting a condition on this process. I want this this particular nasty doubt to go. You know, it's not based on understanding and insight and mm. seeing the, the insubstantial insubstantiality of that particular thought pattern, for example. If you see the insubstantiality, then it just evaporates by itself, and then and then you're back with okay, open clear awareness. So, you're looking so serious? Is this a very serious thing? <laughs> key to uh, strengthening the practice of mudita. Mudita? Yeah. Yeah. I seem to struggle with it a bit. Why? <coughs> Maybe jealousy is there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this mudita is also, it's not uh, only appreciative joy, but also joy, simply joy. And I think, I don't know what your experience is, but you, we usually find when our heart is joyous, and we have joy in our hearts, we find it much easier also to have that kind of appreciation for the good things which happen to others, you know. If our heart is very dry and shriveled up, and we can't inner struggles involved and so forth. It's more difficult to have appreciate, appreciative joy with others, isn't it? So to nourish the <coughs> joyous quality in ourselves then That's a good time to practice it. Yeah, so and also of course that when we're speaking about that, as it's a Brahma Vihara, you know, so it's is it something something we're talking about something a little special, not just humdrum joy, you know, of getting what I want, or so. Um, so there was the lessening of self, 
the lessening of egoic identity, the joy factor increases, isn't it? So, and then, of course, when the joy factor increases and the lessening of self, the sense of, as we talked earlier, the sense of separation goes, goes and then it's much more easier and almost natural to delight in the good fortune and the good things happening to others, you know, and their qualities and their abilities, and just to, or just simply in the how they are and who they are, you know. And they don't even have to have any special ability. <coughs> you just can appreciate another human being as as that person is, you know. Doesn't actually have to. Doesn't actually have to be something special. They don't have to perform anything special, so that we can manifest this appreciative joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question about uh, meta. Um, sometimes uh, when I don't uh, like sit down to meditate. Um, I might just practice metta and I find that it just has quite the same effect as I was sitting for one hour. Um, is it fine to do, uh, just practice metta without um, like um, formal meditation? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah sure. Because important is not the formality, isn't it? The, the the important thing is the the very quality of you your attending to your own heart process. So if you're sitting at home, have your tea time and your favorite like comfy chair. I and feel like yeah, when I'm uh, uh, like agitated or irritated, mm. uh, that's the best remedy <laughs> for some reason. Sometimes I can't even concentrate on practice of meditation, but uh, uh, metta kind of uh, uh, helps to focus. Yeah. Yes, also especially maybe if you don't call metta pure love or so, because that would be making it almost impossible to... No, I don't. You don't, huh? It's more like a goodwill, goodwill uh, quite yeah. often towards myself, like uh, uh, forgiving myself yes. for um, yeah. like, uh, being uh, irritated. Or being, yes, very good. Yeah. yeah, you know, the another way of actually using a skillful meta and skillful ways to call it non-aversion, to not react with aversion towards either external Figures, you know, manifested through other beings, but also not an aversion towards our own evaluation of ourselves. Oh, I should, they obviously, oh, I should have, you know, as a Buddhist particular, should have more kindness for them. And so you're forgiving yourself is a, it's part of that, that non-aversion. You're not adding aversion to it because you've been caught on a weak spot or so, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course you're not, um, Racking with aversion against these the so-called triggers <coughs> on the external level. So that's you know, to practice non-aversion is already enough. It's actually an act of metta. If you practice non-aversion, not again, not no oil in the fire. Instead, forgive them if there's something to forgive. Forgive yourself for not being perfect. 
and then you have a very good uh, basis for a very down-to-earth and real meta practice, you know, rather than just <coughs> painting pink clouds, you know, based on uh, wishful thinking. You're actually attending to the moment, you know, meeting your experience, uh, not with what the experience is suggesting be averse, you know, oh, this is awful, one should be averse, one should be indignant, and righteous indignation, huh? something, is a very popular emotion nowadays, it's all over, all over the internet, you see people righteously indignated about all sorts of things. It's a disease, isn't it? It's a mental disease, righteous indignation. Terrible. <coughs> 